So today we are we are here with Steve Chalk, who's very kindly agreed to have a conversation with me today. So thank, thank you. you so much for being here today, Steve. It's great to be here. Honestly, it is. <laughs> in our very hot office. I'm very in sorry. your hot office, yes. hot, wonderful, sunny day, and I'm not in my office. That <laughs> makes a change, I suppose. <laughs> very often there. Um, so we're just going to start by talking a little bit about Oasis Charitable Trust. Mm. Um, I'm just going to explain what it is really briefly. Um, so you founded it in 1985. If any of this is wrong, yeah, no, that's right. It's, it's from La- your website. Last so. century, last millennium. <laughs> um, and over time, Oasis has grown into a large group of charities that deliver housing, training, youth work, healthcare, family support, and education in over 11 countries around mm. the world. Um, so I just want to start with why did you do it? Why did you create the Oasis Charitable Trust? Um, I. I, I think there's a thing behind the thing. The thing behind the thing is I'm partly Indian, partly English. My dad was really, um, my, both my mother and father have died, but my dad was a really black, southern Indian, almost jet black skin. Mm. Uh, one of the darkest people I've ever met, actually. And um, he came to this country. My mum was very English, very pale, the kind of person who goes bright red on a day like this rather than brown you know blotchy and they met and they married and um, a lot of my mother's uh, family never spoke to her again because she'd married this black guy Um, so that's probably the thing behind the thing so my dad coped with all of this incredibly well he struggled to get work because of his color in those uh, years or at least he could get work but work that where he could use his head as well as his hands. Um, and as a result of that, we were a really poor family. I'm the one, uh, oldest of four siblings. And then, uh, long story short, but I went to a dump school, secondary school. It really was a dump school. Um, uh, and um, it was the kind of school that you only went to if there were no other options for you. And I was a free school dinner kid, as you know, and all of those kind of things. But I fell in love with a girl who went to the girls' grammar school because I lived in Croydon, which ran a grammar system at that time. And I couldn't get to see her except by going to a youth club on a Friday night. So I started going to this youth club, which was about five-minute walk from where I lived, in a little old church hall. And she was gorgeous. I still know her, actually. And after about six months, she got one of her best friends to tell me that she would never, ever, ever go out with me if I was the last bloke on planet Earth. And that night, I wandered home between the youth club and and where I live with my mum, dad, brothers and sisters up this little street. And I was totally crestfallen. What was the point of my life? Was it worth going on? No, it wasn't, etc. And then halfway home I was walking up the side of a football ground actually Crystal Palace football ground in South London so just the length of the football ground separated this little church hall where I went on Friday nights from our house I decided that even if Mary Hooper didn't fancy me I was going to keep going to that youth club because they told me a better story about who I was than my school did they said my life was a waste of time effectively I'd never achieve anything pass anything do anything well they weren't picking on me that's the way we all were Um, But in this little youth group, they told me my life had uh, purpose and meaning and hope and potential and that I could 
do anything if I put my mind to it, but my life was uh, the most valuable resource I had to use instead of waste. So wandering home, I thought to myself, well, even if Mary Hooper doesn't fancy me, that story is better than my school story, and so I'm going to keep going. Um, And then having decided that, I decided this is rather ridiculous bit but it happens to be true I decided if I was going to keep going to that youth club that was run by a church I'd best be a Christian and if I was going to be a Christian I'd best become a church leader in for a penny in for a pound I remember that thought rushing you know you're either in or you're up not so I'm going to be in I'll become a church leader how old were you I was 14 and that was why Mary Hooper didn't fancy me I always like to think she was 15 you know and 15 year old girls do not so Reddish. much better than 14 year olds. Yeah, exactly. Who they see as just children. Um, and I decided that not only would I go to the church and I'd be a, become a church leader, but when I grew up, I was going to start a school that was worth going to, that taught you better a narrative about yourself than the one I had. Uh, though I couldn't use the word narrative then, just about a story. And and I was going to start a house for kids who'd never been told they lo- were loved by anyone hostel and I was going to start a hospital that gave real good care because I grew up in Croydon where the hospital was well known for not giving good care Uh, so I got in told my mum this she had no idea what I was talking about but seemed to think it was all a rather wonderful idea and that's it so uh, another 14 years go by I'm 28 by then um, I trained in theology because that when I went back to the youth club they said well if you want to lead church you better do theology and I got married. My wife's name's Cornelia. She went to the youth group as well. So even though Mary didn't fancy me, Cornelia did. <laughs> and so uh, that was good. And um, I was working for a little church. And I was working for a church, not a little one, actually. Um, and, and I began talking with Cornelia and with the church about, so how do I set up a hostel or a school or a hospital? And in the end, I left my job at the church um, took a chance they let us stay in a, in a house they'd given to us for a year well it was their house they let us stay there rent free for a year and they said you got a year we can't pay you you're on your own but we can give you free accommodation for 12 months and after that it's that so go and see if you can do it and that was the beginning of the Oasis Trust and you did it you said all of those things exist now. It was it was agonising, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it took longer than uh, the first thing we set up was a hostel mm-hmm. for kids who were on the street, and that took longer than a year. But within a year, I'd managed to um, find ways of people supporting me until we got that done, and eventually we opened a hostel, which we still run um, in Peckham. And uh, Cornelia said, "Let's call it Oasis. It's for young women, young adult women." all of whom have been abused in one way, exploited one way or the other. And she said, let's call it Oasis. And so we set up a charity called Oasis and then realised that we shouldn't call it Oasis because these women wanted to live in an anonymous, at an anonymous address on a street, not in Oasis Towers. Mm. And so the charity became called Oasis, but not the house. Yeah. And then we've simply gone on adding, so we school um, lots of houses, Lots of housing, lots of schools, um, lots of healthcare. So it sounds like your perspective of Christianity was always rooted in action, even from when you were a child. Yeah, it was, which I... You see, that's why I told you the first bit of the story about my dad, because I can't work out why it was rooted in that, except Mm -hmm. by telling that story. That's... 
I'm self-analyzing and I have no idea if that's true. But the form of Christianity I became part of wasn't at all committed to political action or social engagement. It was much more, say this prayer, God will forgive you and one day when you die you'll go to heaven. Mm. But somehow from the very start I got to believe in something else and I've got a feeling it was the prejudice that I'd seen worked out against my dad that gave me this deep sense of justice or or, or the, the desire to fight for the underdog, the person who had nothing. But that's trying to analyse myself. But I, I have no idea where this thought came from otherwise and it certainly didn't come from the teaching I received in the church. Um, Oasis runs 51 schools. Mm, 52 actually. 52? Yeah. It's we're building, we're, yeah, it's going up all the time. We're building the 53rd school in Bristol. Wow. And planning the 54th. Yeah. So 54 <laughs> schools, uh, primary and secondary. Across mm. Does that include six forms? Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, that gives you an incredibly unique perspective on the state mm. of our educational mm. system at the moment. Mm. Um, what do you think about the state of our education system in the UK? I was I was going to say if we get an educational system, I've not noticed it. <laughs> you know, so I I think the problem is we don't have a system. We have several different systems that coexist and get in the way of each other. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's the grammar system, and there's still the comprehensive system. Mm-hmm. There's the academies thing and the free school thing. There's all through schools, um, you know, all the way through from three to 18. And then there's the primary, well, you even get, don't you, the infants schools sometimes, the junior schools, the secondary schools, and then sixth form colleges. Um, there's the difference in philosophy between primary schools up to the age of 11 and secondary schools. Um, So a primary school is about my teacher, my classroom, my friends, my chair, my coat peg, and it creates a sense of team. And secondary schools are a giant building where you shuffle around and there's lots of teachers and you go to the rooms, etc., etc. And then some of our education teaches collaboration, but most of our exam system is about individualism when we're training people for jobs that are all about collaboration and working in teams, I could go on, mm-hmm. you know. So, so I think we've got a long way to go to get a cohesive education system. And I think we've got a long way to go to think through what do we really believe education is? What do we really believe education is about? And I think there's a disparity between what most parents hope for their child and what they vote for when they get their league tables. Mm. (laughs) So we vote for academic success. And at the same time, we know that fulfillment in life isn't actually necessarily about academic success, but it's about grounding and character, Mm. the ability to form relationships, make wise decisions under pressure, to stick with relationships, to be able to handle money well and not to be get drunk on fame or wealth or lack of it. and So so we believe all sorts of things, but it gets muddled up because we think a good education is, well, they got five good GCSEs, so they're good. And then we suffer some, from some of the consequences of that because some of our best educated people... Um, independent education, Oxbridge, etc., etc. We then put in charge of banks 
and even countries and then wonder why their character isn't enough to sustain them on the journey. I've always been struck by the lack of the lack of mirroring between the way we test young people and the way they're tested in reality in real yeah, life. Yeah. An exam is is a in my view a completely ridiculous way to test mm. someone's capacity mm. because it's a highly stressful situation in which you test someone's memory yes. whereas in reality if someone's co- completing a task yeah. they they have access to yeah maybe 30 years ago yeah. they wouldn't have had access to the internet yeah. but they would have had access to books and, yeah, and yeah. resources and i ever since i was a child i found that yeah. completely bewildering yeah. life is about collaboration the exam process is about individualism yeah is that um, something you're trying with Oasis and yes, the Oasis so, schools? How do you? So we we work very 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 hard to uh, reverse that. So we know we I would I'd say I'd say it like this: all our education is character based. It's who you are, not what you know, and it's who you're becoming. What kind of person you are? What kind of person you're becoming? And we think that the clearer you are about who you are the easier it is to study anyway. And I imagine that's difficult when you're going up against the requirements of the government. Yeah, you have to wrestle those things through, and I'm actively involved in conversations almost on a week-to-week basis with senior educationists, as are many within Oasis. We're talking all the time about what we believe education is, and Oasis has taken a lot of schools in tough uh, with tough histories. Uh, but in fact, that's the reason why we're given schools, because they've got tough histories. If they're doing really well, um, they're very unlikely to ever end up um, working with us. So when something's going wrong, really wrong, the government tends to come to groups like Oasis and say, this is really failing, will you do something about it? So you've got to analyse, so what's broken here? Why is it broken? And begin to put that together. So that takes a good diagnosis of what's wrong and a good analysis of what makes for an education worth having. So you're always in tension with all of these things. Every child should be given the opportunity to achieve their very, very, very best. Um, and But some children enjoy reading and enjoy books and enjoy writing. And some kids... They want to use their hands and they're creative and arty. And it's so easy for us to write them off as also rands when in actual fact their genius is in a different direction. Mm. And let's sort of keep with the young the young people theme for a moment. Um, there has been a link made by many people about the link between budget cuts in regards to many things, social services and education, mm. and the increase in knife crime that we've seen in recent mm. months mm. and years. Mm. Um Considering your perspective within all these schools, do you mm. see that link? Do you see the link of 10 years of austerity and this current yeah. epidemic? Well, all the facts and figures seem to point point to that. And mm. then uh, I was listening to someone uh, the other day saying, you know, if you, the, the children's centre's money was cut 10 years ago, and so you're looking at a generation that grew up without of that without that input. I was just speaking at something this morning um, on uh, to a group of um, healthcare professionals battling with life in a tough part of the country. And uh, they were talking about gangs and violence, youth violence, etc. Um, and I used the example of someone in the 
uh, case in the news at the moment of this guy on the train who stabbed someone else 18 times. And I said to them, who stabbed someone 18 times? I mean, 18 times. Mm. You keep on stabbing and stabbing and stabbing. There's got to be a whole lot of anger inside you, unresolved tension to do, do that. You can understand someone swiping out at somebody, but to keep on going. So I know nothing about that case except what I read in the press, but I do know this, that in my experience over these decades of working with the most vulnerable young people and older people, the lack of love is the real core. No one listens to me. I've never felt loved. And I don't necessarily mean by a mother or father. It's a wonderful thing if your mother or father loves you. But this sense of attachment, of unconditional love, doesn't need to be a biological link if you've just got someone to invest in you, mm. to listen to you, to really hear you, to be with you. I think that makes a lot of difference. And all the cuts, of course, strip that out. When I read about all these cases, I'm struck by the feeling that it, there must be a real sense of powerlessness for these young people. Mm. It must be the most powerless situation. Yeah. Everyone yeah. talking about how there's no jobs, yeah. the climate yeah, yeah. is a catastrophe. Well, and I'm feeling that, of course, I'm not justifying violence, but it's no wonder that people resort to violence because yeah, yeah. it's a source of power. Yeah, it's a source of power. It's a source of... It's the last piece of power for a powerless person, isn't it? Yeah. And and we also know much more than we used to know, don't we, about how a human brain works. We've learned, you know, the, about neural pathways. We know that um, if a person's not loved, their brain actually forms in a different way. You can look at the um, scans and see it. Mm -hmm. Their brain forms. It's a different shape to someone who has been loved and nurtured. And they don't have the mechanisms in their brain to be able to control themselves. Somebody said to me just a couple of weeks ago, uh, they said, I just lose it. I don't know why I lose it, which I guess is what that guy who did this awful thing on the train, yeah, I just lost it. Mm. I've got to carry, carry on. Well, we now know that um, we know you've got this thing in the front of your brain. I'm sure you know it's the front, uh, prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe. Mm. And... The prefrontal cortex is the management centre of your brain. So your emotions come in lower down in your midbrain, uh, so your limbic system. So all your emotions, your senses, you know, your brain's flooded with all of this. And it sends messages up to your prefrontal cortex. It's up to the management. And the management's job is to sort out responses. Mm -hmm. So I might be really frustrated and angry, but my prefrontal cortex tells me to smile, to not shout, to be calm, to ask a polite question, to inquire. But if the sensations hitting your prefrontal cortex totally overload it, that's why kids say, I lost it. And they have no comprehension of why. No, no yeah. comprehension of why. Yeah. I know kids who um, they get into a fight, they do not mind whether they win or lose. They don't mind if they beat someone up or they get beaten up because both of these ways are ways of releasing, evacuating that tension that's built up. It's like the steam in a kettle mm. and then peace comes. 
In fact, I, I've even talked with people who've told me that a suicide attempt is a releasing thing. So people say, oh, you're always threatening to commit suicide, or they don't mean it. But it's actually a way of releasing all that boiling tension and bringing calm. And where would you say the role of churches is and community organisations in, in attempting to fill the gaps that are currently present in our system? Well, I tell you this amazing story um, as an illustration. So we took on a school in a particular part of the country and a really tough housing estate. And just down the road from um, our school was a Methodist church building. But the Methodist denomination had decided to shut it. And they decided to shut it because only very few people in their late years, in their late 70s and 80s, went to this building. They just couldn't afford to keep it open. They couldn't afford a minister, etc., etc., etc. So it was redundant to need. So the denomination chose to shut it. But the few people that went to it hated this. And the Methodist denomination really kindly loaned Oasis the ability to be able to use the building and we used it as a centre for kids who couldn't sit in a classroom. They couldn't be educated amongst 30 other kids because they kept losing it and kept, you know, they were lovely but then they fly off the handle and they were so disruptive. So we try not to exclude young people but we try to include them and we try to find a way of including them and we use this little Methodist church hall in order to include these these kids. So one morning I was there um, at this inclusion unit that we'd created and um, we'd put in a pool table and there were some desks and et cetera, et cetera, a coffee, a little kitchenette that was there. Um, anyway, I arrived and there's a kid who was 12 who I knew was capable of serious damage to anyone and whose background was all about violence, which is why he was mm. as he was, because of what he'd witnessed and seen, because his neural pathways hadn't been formed well. Anyway, this elderly man in his 80s, who was one of the Methodists, arrived, and they played pool together. It was first thing in the morning. And one of our staff, OS's staff members, said, watch this. She said, that kid... He loses it all that. He doesn't like to lose. If he loses, he loses it. And the old man's beating him. So this old guy, he's obviously played Paul a lot. And he's, you know, wanders around the table, staggers around the table, and eventually he pots the black. He's won. And the kid is holding a stick. And our staff member says, said to me, he could well take that stick and beat it over the old man's head. But the old man wandered round the table to him, shook his hand, put his arm round him, and they wandered off together to the kitchenette where the old man put the kettle on and made him a cup of coffee. And then I watched as they went over to a computer, sat down in front of the screen, and began a literacy course. We do literacy courses on, on computer screen. And they sat chatting. And that has stuck with me for, this must have been eight years ago. I'll tell you the story because it's probably the most powerful illustration I know of, of love. See, that kid, his dad was in jail. His mum had left him. He had no one. 
everybody was ever with was paid to be there. Social workers, teachers, probation officers, medical staff. Everyone he met, youth workers, all of them were paid to be with him. But this elderly Methodist man wasn't paid. He was there because he wanted to be. And I'm sure this young guy, young kid, couldn't articulate it like I just have. But you know, I know he knew that for once in his life, someone was with him who just chose to be there and wasn't being paid for it. That, I believe, is the love revolution. That is the investment unconditionally of time. And I think that the church is in a, an extraordinary position to be able to offer that as a service alongside education, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et no, it's such a beautiful story. And it's the thing that changes the world. Yeah. Love. And, you know, with, at the risk of boring you, I sat talking to um, one of the bosses of Ofsted just, um, uh, just a week or two ago, and I said, you know, we're, we're torn in our country, it seems to me, between two worldviews. One is an Aristotelian worldview. Aristotle has huge command over the way we think. And Aristotle was the person that said, you can only live life by living in a story. You can only do morality by living in a story. It's what's called virtue ethic. And he, he's the man who gave us these virtues, these great virtues. But Aristotle's greatest virtue, 350 years before Jesus, Aristotle said, you've got to live by virtues. And the greatest of all virtues is Sophia, wisdom intellectual capacity because you've got to master yourself and if you achieve Sophia wisdom knowledge intellectual capacity then he had lots of other virtues and they all lead to the last one which is the Greek word you translate magnificence uh, to be magnanimous a brave hero who uh, who engages others magnanimously all about self-control So along comes the Apostle Paul, who studied both Aristotle and was a follower of Jesus. And he's kind of saying, Aristotle, you're right. You've got to live your life in a story, a narrative. And it's got to have virtues. It's just you've got the wrong story and the wrong virtues. Because the greatest greatest virtue isn't knowledge. It's not wisdom, intellectual capacity. The greatest virtue is love. And the last of the virtues, fruits of the Spirit, is, if you read them, self-control. Whereas Aristotle's were about knowledge and control being magnanimous. What Paul says, no, you've read the wrong story. The right story is conditioned by love and self-control. And I think our society is torn between, do we believe that Sophia, wisdom, knowledge, wisdom, not deep wisdom, it's, it's knowledge, you know, the ability to think through equations and come up, you know, self-mastery. Do we, be, are we in a knowledge-based culture where we believe the greatest thing is to know a lot or the greatest thing is to love? I think these are clashing worldviews and we've never quite worked out which one we believe in. So talking of love, um, and if we have time, we'll, I'll come back to you some of the work you do at Oasis Charitable Trust but let's let's move on to Oasis Church Waterloo mm. and the the way you the way you do church because mm. I find it fascinating 
Um, so when I've read about Oasis, uh, people call it an inclusive church. Mm. Would you define it as an inclusive church? Yeah, in fact, the O of Oasis in our logo is a messy O, mm. and it's got many stranded. And we always, the kids in our schools, for instance, that's their badge, the messy O. And we say, it's the inclusive O. It's messy because it's inclusive, because we're all different. But it's strong because it's rugged, because inclusion allows for difference, and difference creates strength. We are strong together. So, um, but, but inclusion is, is, there are lots of inclusions and lots of exclusions, and, and I, I'm all, I'm always fascinated by the, you know, the, the story of the Good Samaritan or when Jesus says, love your enemy, love your enemy. And then he goes on to say, for in this way, you become children of your heavenly father. Whereas you, you'd think if you didn't know the end of the saying, you think, love your enemy, it does them good. <laughs> love your enemy and make them better people love your enemy they might drop their grudge and you know and be more gracious but jesus he's not talking about them at all he says love your enemy in this way you will become a child of your heavenly father i think what jesus is saying through the parable of the uh, through the parable of the um, good samaritan jews hated samaritans as you know through this saying through it in other places is when i reach out when we reach out and engage with the other, the person who's different to us in race, in colour, in ethnicity, in belief structure. In When I reach out and engage with the person I've always run away from, I have to confront the dark bits of my soul. All of those little bits of me that I've hidden away and don't even like to admit exist. I have to confront them by crossing the room. And actually, I find that that relationship changes me that's why I become more like my heavenly father. Like the um, Quakers say, you know, they say um, an enemy is a friend whose story you've not yet encountered, known, don't yet know. Did Was defining Oasis in such a radically inclusive way, was that a deliberate choice when you founded it or was it something that evolved over time? It's kind of, it's evolved over time. I think it's always there. It's always been there because of that story about my dad. Because I grew up with racism. I saw racism in operation. I knew what it was like. So I've always been on on the side of the underdog. I don't say that that's a virtue. Sometimes it gets you into loads of trouble and you're kind of like, you know, kind of, it's just I can't walk away from from the person who's getting a bad deal, you know. Um, so I think that's there. Of course, as the years have gone by, um, you become more articulate around these things. You work out ways of languaging um, a sense that you have. And so I am always on that journey. But I do believe that a church of all places has to be the place where whoever I am and whatever I've done, I am always welcome. Church should be sanctuary, shouldn't it? Um, I remember when I first became the leader of what is now Oasis Church Waterloo, very few people went to it. And there's some steps that we don't very often use now up to one of the entrances. And um, it's got a kind of patio area at the top. And very few people used to go to the church and the services were always solemn. And I used to go along and take them. And there were only 10, 12 people there. And then new people started arriving. Um, 
but sometimes um, they'd um, a service can be a long thing, and then people start coming who couldn't do a whole hour and a bit without a fag. And so they go out of those doors, you probably know, and they stand outside and have a smoke and then come back in. And one day a little group went out and had a, a cigarette in, in some songs or whatever it was, and they came back in for communion, for the communion at the end. And somebody who was in the church, who is lovely themselves, said, it's a disgrace, it's a disgrace, Steve people going out and smoking on the church steps before taking communion it's a disgrace and um i've had a long i had a long time to think about that and actually said to them they are lovely you know we're all a product of what we've been taught i said you're right it is a disgrace a disgracing and it's disgracing to believe that someone who wants a cigarette isn't welcome at a communion table. That literally is a disgrace. Mm. So you're right. But it's a different part of what happened that was the disgrace than you think. Grace always reaches out, always includes. That's who we're going to be. The truth is that person is still in the church and is beautiful. We grow as we go, don't we? And I just want to talk about this um, inclusive church movement mm. briefly because it, it, it's something that is, is growing mm. um, specifically in regards to how churches um, include people who are in the LGBT community. Yeah, yeah. And I personally think it's wonderful mm. um, and I've, I've been to Oasis a number of times and it's, it's really a moving experience to be in a space where you don't feel you have to hide mm. from, from who mm. you are. Um, and you don't feel the other people around you are avoiding the elephant in the room, mm. the kind of mm. thing. I just want to ask, the criticisms of inclusive church is that in labelling it an inclusive church, you are at the risk of excluding the people who might have a different opinion to mm. you mm. in regards to... Human sexuality is the easy one to, to say because yeah. it's such the well-known, yeah. but yeah. there are many, many others yeah, sure. in regards to literal understanding of the Bible, yeah. um, views of women, views on abortion, yeah. meant that we could choose whatever mm. topic we wanted. Mm. But how do we how do we do church in a way that is inclusive but doesn't exclude the people who we don't agree with? Yeah. And I I think the answer to that is to understand that the church is a company of people having a conversation with each other. Um so I often talk about this I say a good sermon, for instance, shouldn't be a talk that everybody laughs at the jokes and goes away and has remembered them and agrees with everything. A really good talk should be one that gets you di- discussing and debating. I agree with that. I didn't agree with that. We all have different views and opinions on a giant range of things. The problem is in churches that it's almost like you can disagree and have different views about all sorts of things, but LGBT, that's... Yeah, what you're not allowed to have a different view on um, at the moment these things are always passing it'll be, a, it'll be something else in a few years time but uh, what I try to say and teach and live out is everybody's welcome at the discussion Jesus said it's by your love for one another that you'll be marked out so 
the person who is the other with the other view my job is to really listen to them and engage with them and learn mm. and we can learn even from what we believe are the most stupid inputs into the discussion in fact I think that church has been a discussion that's stretched across 2,000 years already so it's not just of those of us amongst those of us who happen to be alive um, at the moment the Wesley brothers are part of this conversation William Booth is part of this conversation Catherine Booth is part of this conversation etc etc just to pick on some famous names and slowly we move ourselves forward and I have to remember in this I am accepted by God not because I'm right I'm accepted by God in spite of my views which keep evolving and changing anyway <laughs> I'm accepted by God because of God's graciousness not because of my rightness so actually I should accept everyone else because of God's graciousness not because of my right uh, their rightness we need to have space for this gracious conversation that doesn't demonize one another and recognizes that the very view I don't approve of at the moment I probably had five years ago and in five years time I would have moved on again so even if we say a view is final it's always provisional because we're growing unless we intend to stop growing at this point and it's it's tricky because um, a term we use a lot is that we live in a world and we live in groups of people with con contradictory convictions mm. where we all we, we're all under the Christian label but there's so much diversity within yeah. all of those all of those labels and and how do we make it an environment where people feel at home and loved and welcomed, but also safe to say the things that they yeah. truly believe? Yeah. Because I'm of the opinion that conversations around everything, not the obvious big questions of human sexuality mm. and that kind of thing, but everything from the reality of the Trinity to mm. this, the, mm. um, the, the, the secretness of the Bible to mm. the job of communion mm. is happening in people's heads and it's happening yeah, around dinner time. tables mm. and it's happening um, when parents are talking to their children about this kind of thing. Yes. And how do we yeah. make a space in churches where people yeah. feel that they can truly be not judged and they're allowed to grow yeah. and evolve yeah. at the same time as being yeah. filled yeah. with grace? Because if you can't ask the, the question in the church... It's the only place you can't ask the question because out there in a bar or you know in a cafe or at home or with your mates you're going to ask all the questions yeah. so even if the church says that question is off limits there's some red lines in this and you can't actually say well was jesus actually born from a virgin mother did jesus actually rise from the dead you know whatever whatever the question might be if you can't ask it of course, you are asking it. Yeah. It's just that you can't discuss it. Yeah. And that, of course, makes a weaker church, not a stronger one. Mm. Let's just move on quickly to um, Oasis's very political nature as mm. a church. It's, uh, I don't know whether you'd use the term, but when I observe it, I observe it as a very politically active church, yes. not in regards to party affiliation, no. but in regards to real practical political Yeah, justice action. issues. Yeah, justice, lots yeah. of justice issues. And again, it's a similar question to what I asked before, but is that something that was intentional? And, or has, has it well, grown? Or yeah, uh, it's grown, it's intentional, but, and it's grown. But, but the, the, the reality is, of course, that for, firstly, well, when I began Oasis, 
um, as I said earlier, started a hostel. And these young women come to live with us. Now, this is social action. But you can either carry on providing rooms and meals and love for these women all your life until you die, which I hope we still do. We do. But there comes a point at which you've got to say, but why are they abused? Why have they got no money? Why is there no housing? Why is there not a safety net for them? Why can't they ever get any time with a social worker that makes any sense? Mm. So it, to use William Booth's expression, the founder of the Salvation Army, he said, in the end, instead of pulling people out the river, you've got to move upstream, find out where they're falling in and ask, why isn't there a bridge built? Yeah. So social action always leads to social justice in the end. If you've just got to go up river. Yeah, you've got to yeah. go up river. You're going to get to those justice issues, those policy issues. You're going to ask why, and that plunges you into politics, which is it's right the affairs of the people, the affairs of the city. And Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, years and years ago wrote a book. I can't even remember which one it is, but he was really helpful to me. This donkey's years ago, he said, "We all got, we've all got Jesus down as a preacher. You know, he's a wonderful preacher." He said, "He wasn't a preacher at all." Jesus didn't preach sermons and occasionally do things. Jesus did things, provocative things, things that upset people, political things the whole time. He was always having meals with the wrong kind of people, hanging around in the wrong kind of places, asking the wrong kind of questions. His whole life was an affront to the system, the way he lived. Go the extra mile, love your enemy, etc., etc. He lives differently and occasionally he stops and comments on why he's doing it. He was, said Tom, a political activist who sometimes gave a commentary on what it was that drove him. And that, I thought, that's liberating. That's the way I see things. And I, I get the impression that a lot of churches have real fear in getting involved with political thinking and social justice and and putting putting the marginalised at the centre because of this possibly quite modern idea that faith is something private. Mm. And Oasis has done an absolutely phenomenal job of putting God and politics and social justice all in the same overlapping Venn diagram mm. type of mm. thing. And I just... In regards to other churches and people who might be looking to get their congregation involved in social justice thinking, mm. how would you? What advice would oh, you give? Oh, start with something easy. That's easy, you know. <laughs> so, so when I came to the church that you know as Oasis Church in Waterloo, which is in two thousand and three, I began to work there. There were ten or so people in the congregation. The building was shut all week except for an hour on a Sunday, and um, uh, eleven to twelve. And I said, why don't we open a coffee shop on Tuesday afternoons? I think it was Tuesday afternoons. And they thought this was terrible. Um, how could we do this? But actually, the truth is, it was easy. You know, you don't need many skills to open a coffee shop. This wasn't a smart coffee shop. This was a kettle, you know, and some biscuits. And, and we used to open on Tuesday afternoon. Low skills, high impact. The church building is open. 
you know, it, it looks like there's something going on because, of course, unless you're up early on a Sunday morning, it looked like this building had be em been empty for years. Now it's open. People start coming in. Young mums started coming in for a coffee because it's a poor community and there's a free cup of coffee or a near free cup of coffee and a chance to sit and their kids could run around in, a, in safety whilst they sat and chatted. So they began telling us that, um, stories about, well, we need new swings and, um, that, uh, and there's, you get needled in the park and there's an old children's centre down the road, a one o'clock club it was called, and it's been empty for the last four or five years. Why can't we take it on? So by listening, you begin getting new projects. Actually, we did take on the one o'clock club. It's now called Oasis Play Space. It's a children's centre that we've been running for the last half a decade or more. More than half a decade. Lots more than half a decade, thinking about it. And, half a decade. <laughs> yeah. And the little swings there, the, ch the tiny swings for the little kids. We run that area as too, as well. But when you work with those people, then you, they say, well, you know, there's not a decent secondary school around here. Uh, one that we can get into. There's one for Church of England boys and there's one for Catholic girls, but there's not one for the whole community. So we approached the Department for Education and said, look, we've got a building here. Can we open a secondary school? And they said, yes. It's all more complicated than that, but that's effectively what happened. And then we opened the secondary school. And the secondary school's really flying. In fact, it's become one of the top secondary state schools in the country. And then we said, well, can we open a sixth form? And they said, yes. It took them two years to say yes. But we, they said, yes, and now we, uh, we run a sixth form. And that leads on to other things. Do you, you see, get the point. Plunge in, but go for the low-hanging fruit, the easy-to-do thing. Don't go for something that's incredibly difficult and going to take you three years you will fail at it because you'll run out of momentum choose something that people can do a bit of a challenge but it's achievable and when they're doing that they move on to something else and the more you get involved in your community I guarantee the more political you'll become in the sense that you've talked about it in the sense that you become passionate about the fact why isn't there a decent swing place why isn't there some a decent place for these kids to play football where where where, why, why isn't there a shop that they can afford to shop in? Why are all the prices round here um, catering for tourists and, and, and commuters rather than local people? Mm. That's what happens. Why are these traffic lights unsafe? Why have 15 people been run over here in the last year and nobody does anything about it? it it's yeah. inevitable because Jesus said, love your neighbour the way you love my, yourself, which means you've got to stick up for, for them. I had the most fascinating conversation at church the other day, actually, with someone who said, oh, I don't care about politics. I don't mm. vote. I've never mm. voted. And I said, okay, so what, what do you care about? Mm. And it and listed all the things I care about. Injustice, I care about modern slavery. I care about the fact that mm. I can't afford rent in mm. London. I'm like, that is politics. Mm. And it, it's very easy for me to say that because I work in Westminster, you know, and, and, and you see the you see the realities of politics when people don't labor, give it the give it the label that it is. Yeah. But something I find I'm interested in your perspective on this. I have a theory that people don't people don't make the link between law and policy. Mm. So people know that if they park on a certain line that they'll get a ticket because mm. that's the law. Mm. But they maybe don't make the connection that that law was made in a big fancy building in London yeah. we call the House of Parliament. Yeah. yeah. And 
this is more just I'm just chatting to you now no, really no. but <laughs> I've I've had this theory for a while that like when we're talking about the big things about like rent about mm. the capacity for mm. schools about social funding about all of these things that people are angry about them but they don't but they don't make the connection between that or well, maybe not maybe some people do mm. but the vast majority of people might not make the connection yeah, between no, that yeah no too passive the, yeah i used to live in cro- necessarily too passive but yeah. just like how are we supposed to know if we're never told that yeah, that's the yeah, way it works? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, I agree with that. And and so I was going to illustrate my point. Sorry, uh, but, God. <laughs> no, I was going to illustrate my point by saying, I used to live in Croydon, where's the where I grew up, yeah. see? And, um, and a few years ago in Croydon, it was the local elections, uh, May elections, and there were posters in all the bus stops, you know, as you sat there waiting for your bus, and the poster simply uh, said this, it was a riddle, um, a question. It said, question, what takes two minutes but lasts four years? And down the bottom, A, answer, your vote. And I thought, what a watered-down version of democracy that is, you know, because that creates that passive approach, doesn't it? Go along, put your cross on someone's in someone's box and leave it to them to sort out all the problems whilst you sit and watch the TV, mm. you know, some box set. So we've moved so far from active participation in community together. And what I find, I, I think it's true of, of Westminster, uh, it appears to be, if, if I was sitting on a panel that had a funding pot and they were giving away grants for community groups doing doing whatever it is you know working with working with kids through through holidays perhaps I make that up because we're coming to the yeah. holidays so I know darn well we're going to get thousands of applicants hundreds of applicants they're all going to turn up here if we interview them on a shortlist wearing their best clothes they're all going to turn up with a wonderfully printed out PowerPoint or a wonderful presentation. So the quality of the presentation could be phenomenal. The quality of their clothing could be phenomenal. Their ability to say yes and please and smile at all the right places could be phenomenal. Their articulation of the issues may be phenomenal. But I've got 50 groups going through that process and we've only got money to give to five groups. How do I make a decision if I'm on that panel? What I do in the end is I go with the person who's already doing it. They may not be doing much of it because they've only got they've only got fifty pounds to spend and not five thousand pounds to spend. But they're doing something. They're making a difference. So I'm not particularly looking for the person with the smartest PowerPoint or the smartest clothes. I'm looking for the person who can tell me what they were doing without any money or backing, just because they had to participate in their community. And I'm thinking I'll vote for that guy. Yeah, and so I think that we need to relearn that and then I think of course if you've got skin in the game if you're out there battling away or whatever it is people then begin listening to you don't they so you have much more of a say in the formation of policies and eventually legislation than the guy who contemplates all this and writes a letter to the Times mm. I don't care if you've written a letter to the Times or not. Yeah. I want to know, what are you actually doing? Yeah. 
I'm so intrigued by the idea that there are almost certainly hundreds of social justice con- social justice organisations, even if they don't call themselves that, mm. across this country doing amazing grassroots yeah. work that have never even contacted their MP. No. And I find that I something I feel really passionately about is this yeah. idea that like MPs do a really good job of responding to the people who write to them. Yeah. But what about the people who don't? Yeah. And it's that. And they they have to do a really good job of responding to all the people who write to them moaning about all sorts of things so they love it when somebody says I'm concerned about this and that and I don't like this but would you like to come and see our project and you see why I feel like this and the MP will turn out and they will get involved because they want to know what's going on in their constituency and if someone sits there and they happen to be a mum who's in work a single mum who's in work who's working for her three kids and she's 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 on universal credit and it's not working and she can't eat her flat during the winter and eat and give her children breakfast. That's going to make so much more impact than all the position papers on the planet. Yeah. Get involved, which seems to me to be the core message of, um, of the Bible. Yes. You know, the core message of the Bible is redemption, isn't it? It's salvation. Salvation meaning rescue. You know, and and God's cooperative. So Jesus only ever teaches us one prayer, and he says, I always joke and say, that's how you know Jesus wasn't an Anglican, because if Jesus was an Anglican, he would have left three for every day, <laughs> you know, kind of. But he leaves one prayer, and it is, Our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. And then all the bits about asking for forgiveness and all this kind of come later. But it doesn't begin with pleading to be forgiven and etc etc give me today my daily bread it begins with your kingdoms come in let me join in your kingships come in let me join in love as an action yeah yeah so just a sentiment yeah Yeah. so 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 christian faith christ-centered faith at its very core is incarnational it's Mm -hmm. it's don't sit there it's get involved the incarnation Christmas comes around regularly, doesn't it? And we say, you know, that God became a man. That's incarnation. And I always think that's a pretty lousy description of incarnation. The incarnation for me is God becomes a specific man with a specific coloured skin living in a particular village with aunts and uncles and cousins and a mum and dad with a particular job who laughs at particular jokes, who weeps with his friends as they as they stand over the grave of someone they love who's died. He tells particular jokes he has. He is immersed in a community and then he speaks out of those relationships and out of that community and out of the, that commitment. That is incarnation. Yeah, we have a relational God, mm. and, and yet we isolate ourselves from yeah. the communities in it's, which we are related yeah. to. It's specific, earthed, engaged, involved. It's not ethereal. Yeah. I don't think I can top that. So I'm just going to finish with a little bit of a silly question, actually, mm. but I thought it would be a good way to finish. Um, in 2005 and 2007, you broke two Guinness World Records <laughs> when you ran the marathon. Um, it was the largest amount of sponsorship money ever raised. Mm. Um, so firstly in 2005, yeah. then you got beaten and then you yeah. did it again in 2007. I did it twice, actually, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, 
I just want to ask, if you could break or set mm. another world record, what mm. would you do? And this doesn't mm, have to goodness. be, this could be silly or it could yeah. be something about your work, whatever well, you What want. would I set as a, I broke a world record? Well, I mean, the serious one, because I, I think about it, is, you see, I think, I think that we need to change the social structure. Um, so we, um, what government departments do is they go to um, those big infrastructure companies all the time, you know, and they give them big contracts to run healthcare or run a hospital or run a prison or run a whatever it is. And everybody knows that these um, big companies, they're taking the first 20% out and it's profit and they're putting it into the hands of the shareholders. So you so you subcontract out and you lose 20% or 15% just along the way, don't you, and all the rest of it. And there's all these complaints, aren't there, about how these companies perform. I dream, I'd, I'd like to break a record, I'd like Oasis to become a third sector, uh, uh, not-for-profit charity, which is what we are, that that can win those contracts and put all that cash and all that energy back into the community. And I wish that our governments could wake up to the fact that what we should be back in are the agencies that care about communities, not care about the shareholders' dividends. Because there's already many, many charities who are non-profit service providers. Absolutely, and have got the capacity. So my yeah. dream is that those charities that have got capacity step up and do more, and we wake up to the fact that we, we, we don't need to redistribute the wealth from government into the hands of shareholders, of companies who don't deliver well very often mm. but we ought to be putting that money back into communities where it's used every last last penny so that is is what i hope comes about and i suppose slightly more flippant thing is <laughs> but it's it's tied in when i'm old enough to know who paul simon is you know, you know. Oh, all right. Okay. Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, bridge over troubled water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, you there you go. Say with a band before you say. The yeah, yeah. Sorry. Guy. And Paul Simon had a song on some album, and it was called "One Man's Ceiling Is Another Man's Floor." Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a, it's a great song, but I always think that's true. One man's ceiling is another man's floor. So the ceiling of our generation, my generation, becomes the floor of the next. The further we get. The further we shove it, the further we can get with our ceiling. Well, that's the next generation's starting place. It's their floor, do you know? So one man's ceiling or one woman's ceiling is the other woman's floor. And I think that, that if I could breathe something into everyone, I'd breathe that in and say, we've got to get as far as we possibly can. And then we know that the next generation are just going to use it as a starting point to get further, to create God's kingdom on earth. His, God's will being done as it is in heaven here on earth. Well, on that wonderfully hopeful point, thank you so much for being with us today, Steve. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you.